You are listening to Underscore, a podcast of music and story. On our second episode dedicated to Bernard Herrmann's Vertigo, we explore the central musical themes of the score. Welcome back to Underscore, the show that celebrates the rich tradition of movie music one film at a time. We continue our discussion of the score to Vertigo. I'm Marty Brueggemann. With me, as always, is my brother, Will. Hey, everybody. We're so excited to be back. If you remember, last week, we focused in on Bernard Herrmann as a composer. We talked a lot about his specific sound and style and the influence that he's had on the world of film music in general. Like Marty mentioned, this week, we're going to take a closer look at Vertigo and specifically discussing the themes. We wanted to mention, just I guess as a sort of clarification, that hopefully last week's episode didn't feel like too much of a diversion because we will be using some of the vocabulary and concepts that we mentioned last time and apply it to our discussion today. And a lot of the features of Herman's writing are definitely going to come into play throughout this score. We talked a lot about Herman's tendency for downward motion in his melodies, Mm -hmm. emphasizing dissonance in his harmonies, and that's definitely going to be a topic of today's discussion. As always, like we did with the score to Raiders, we will have supplementary material that's available on our website, underscorepodcast.com. Today, since we're talking about the themes, we're going to have a little chart that has uh, basically just the melody and chords for each theme, um, just so you can follow along at home and help better understand uh, some of these specific musical cues that we're going to talk about today. I'm so excited to dig into this. Uh, As we mentioned, Bernard Herrmann is one of our favorite composers and this score to vertigo is um i mean i can say for myself and i think marty as well one of our favorite film scores absolutely in many ways we're trying to do sort of our due diligence covering films that are culturally significant and musically significant but we're of course focusing on films that are incredibly important to us personally and we would not be able to talk about our love of film music without delving into this wonderful score. And in keeping with the format of this show, all of our discussions of the score to Vertigo are going to culminate once again into another feature-length audio commentary where we go through the entire film and discuss its themes in context with the complete movie. So why don't we get into some of these themes here today? If you may be familiar with the score, there may only be you know one or two of these themes that might stick out in your memory. Uh, but I'm sure as we discuss these here today, Today, you'll remember, oh gosh, there's actually quite a few different thematic ideas. And I'm really interested to talk about the way that Herman not only uses these musical themes as leitmotif, the concept we mentioned last month when talking about John Williams, um, but more than leitmotif as part of the salient underscore itself. A lot of these themes that we're going to hear today, yes, they have character melodic identification, but they almost seem to serve a greater purpose of just scoring the emotions of the film beat to beat, moment to moment. I think that's so true. Uh, Also, oftentimes 
there's not much separation between a melodic phrase and a harmonic progression. Like Will alluded to, there isn't necessarily an abundance of distinct themes in this film. The movie is certainly not scored wall to wall. A little less than half of the film plays without any music at all. Mm -hmm. But of the music that we do have, there are some really significant themes and even sort of harmonic gestures that carry us throughout the movie. Let's take a listen to the first such theme, which we are dubbing Madeline's theme. I don't think it's too bold to call this piece Madeline's theme because in the score, Herman uh, simply titles this cue Madeline. So (laughs) it seems fair enough. And we (laughs) see it um, accompanying our lead actress, played by the incredible uh, Kim Novak. We want to mention again, there will probably be some spoilers. And so again, we highly encourage you to watch this film, but hopefully we'll try to take you through some of the narrative beats. Anyway, it's safe to say that the character of Madeline has a mystery about her. She really is. We talked about the Ark of the Covenant in Raiders being the MacGuffin. You could say that Madeline is almost the MacGuffin of this story because she, um, in addition to being a character who uh, the main character, Scotty, slowly starts to develop feelings for, um, all of the plot of the movie revolves around um, her actions and Scotty following her and this mystery behind what her intentions are. And her apparently being a, a very troubled person uh, psychologically when we examine this theme we see right off the bat it goes against one of the uh central devices we talk so much about with herman which is the idea of a falling motive this melody starts right off the bat with upward motion and i think a big part of that is to almost be in contrast with our love theme that we're going to talk about later but that love theme is probably one of the most iconic things from the score to vertigo and the way this madeline's theme is presented it's almost like the other half of that theme Um, and it sets up similar harmonic implications but anyways i digress this melody starts off with Um, and it has that uh, leap upward. We still get that sense of um, dissonant note resolving down. Yeah, it's sort of an appoggiatura. We might describe it in theory where we sort of emphasize a note that our ear wants to hear resolved. And that's happening here. We're hearing the ninth degree or the second degree against this minor chord, and then it resolves downward. And then we emphasize another dissonance, which is another ninth of a different minor chord that also resolves downward. As the film progresses, our perception of this character wildly changes. And so contextually, this is a piece of music and a cue that we tend to only hear in the first half of the film. And uh, I'm just, I guess, going to give some spoilers. Um, 
once Scotty it, uh, believes Madeline to have died and uh, starts to notice this other woman who resembles her, and then ultimately we find out that it wasn't the real Madeline all along, and it was this woman, uh, Judy, dressing up like her. And um, If that's even her real name. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but So what I think is interesting about this cue is it's almost a falsehood. And what Marty and I have noticed about the score to Vertigo is it really almost seems like it's all from Scotty's perspective, the main character Scotty, and that the music is reinforcing his emotional experience moment to moment. I think that's going to be especially emphasized uh, when we sit down in the commentary because we'll notice the score really is true to that idea. So much of the film is from Scotty's perspective and about his uh, deteriorating mental condition with his acrophobia and vertigo. Right. And- all of these things. And this original theme to Madeline um, really feels characteristic. This is almost like his initial impression of this character. There's much more romance in a simple sense and much less mystery than the ultimate love theme where there's a sense of danger to it. Yeah, Herman's almost scoring her initially as sort of a beautiful screen heroine. And perhaps some of those subtle appoggiatura dissonances might suggest a, a hint of mystery around the character. But the Madeline theme itself doesn't yet take us to the depths of some of that mystery or intoxication. Without going into too much detail into how the film is spotted, we should say that as the film progresses and we have a pretty shocking turn of events when, as Will mentioned, Scotty believes that Madeline has died, this theme also, in effect, dies. Right. And in a few minutes, we'll sort of talk about what happens to this material and what it potentially evolves into. I want to talk a little bit about uh, this music and how it's orchestrated. It's definitely fair to say that as a theme, it's much more wandering and it really is only probably the first three or four bars that have a very specific melodic character. Um, sure. The, the, the rest of it is a bit more wandering, not necessarily to say that it isn't melodic, uh, but it's not as striking as really catches our ear. But something that's interesting to me about the way it's orchestrated, um, again, we talked about this last week, Herman is all about directness in with his, when it comes to his harmonic choices, his musical themes, and especially when we're talking about orchestration. Uh, this cue is entirely in the strings. There's no other doubling. Right. Um, and the melody is in first violins. And what's interesting to me is the harmony happens at the beginning of each bar. Uh, and so we have some of the violins, violas, and cellos. Uh, they're just doing these sustained chord textures. But the melody seems to reach its moment of climax on offbeats and sustains across the bar. So there's this interesting effect of the melody moving um, not at the same time that the harmony is moving. So you have ya da da ba da 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 ba if that makes any sense. It actually makes perfect sense. <laughs> very well sung. And it gives always. it gives plenty of room for, um, since it is just sustained uh, chord textures from the strings, it gives plenty of room for what we would call a mezzo di voce, which is when you have a uh, crescendoing line as it swells and then releases. So those string harmonies are going... Yeah, da. 
and um, on the on the first bar they're getting louder and on the second bar they're getting softer we see it all the time in uh, classical music but I think the emotional implications are very clear there's that longing and almost sighing with that appoggiatura that resolves down and is I think really effective the other thing I really love about this texture is how distant it sounds I think part of that is that all the strings are playing con sordino or with a mute for those that may not know it is possible to play string instruments with a mute it's actually a little rubber attachment that connects to the bridge of the instrument and it does bring the volume down considerably um, but it also changes the timbre or the sort of tone making it somewhat darker sounding so the strings are muted which perhaps makes them sound a little bit more distant, a little bit quieter. And then the accompanying harmony, like Will mentioned, is for the most part, uh, Devisi strings. So uh, we're kind of dividing the, the players. Right. Uh, and that's another nice way to s sometimes almost thin out the texture. That Devisi string sound is really a huge part of string writing of the 20th century. Yeah, what's interesting is the way that Herman chooses to use this string orchestra. He basically leaves out the double basses for the majority of this cue. We actually do have this glist harp chord, and that's really the only moment when the, the double basses enter in, and also just for one note at the end. Uh, but it's just violins, violas, and cellos. And so you almost might think, oh, it sounds like a string quartet. Uh, but it is that divided sound that not only results in that thinness Marty was talking about, but it allows for these rich 20th century Herman chords and Herman harmonic right. voicings. Um, you could say that the thinness of dividing that texture was part of his reason, but you could also just say he wanted to have more detailed seventh and ninth chords and uh, <laughs> right. you need more players to play more notes. Right. Both, both are true, which is a wonderful phenomenon we run into all the time in music where there are multiple paths to explaining why something works the way it does. Now, Will mentioned there's a lot of identity confusion surrounding Kim Novak's character. Is she Madeline or is she ultimately uh, Judy? The chief concern early on in the movie is that she is possessed by a woman from long ago, Carlotta Valdez. The next theme we'd like to look at is a theme associated very closely with Carlotta Valdez. It's whenever Madeline or Judy, it might be better if we just say whenever Kim Novak's character um, <laughs> yeah. is looking at this painted portrait of Carlotta Valdez, or there are a couple of spots later in the film where she's purporting to remember experiences that Carlotta Valdez had. Uh, let's take a listen to this theme, which first appears in Herman's cue, Carlotta's Portrait. absolutely signature piece of music. This isn't the first time we've mentioned this cue on the show. When we were talking about the theme to the Ark of the Covenant, 
we couldn't help but feel reminded of this particular cue. Let's take a look at what's happening here, what's making this such a unique musical moment. There's this incessant ostinato that's happening in the harp, that da, 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 that rhythm set to just one pitch that takes us through almost the entirety of the cue. It might not strike us this way listening to it, but Herman seems to be thinking of this piece of music in sort of a Spanish context, like a Spanish dance. In the score, he actually compares it to a habanera. And it's a, a lovely little touch for this character, Carlotta Valdez, who is supposed to be of Spanish origin. And I also feel like some of the chromatic touches and the yada, even though it's so slow moving and spacious, that almost accents a bit of that sense of Latin harmony that was actually really popular in music of the 1950s. That's such a good point. So against this harp drone, uh, we then have these flutes enter in pairs of flutes sort of singing these thirds against the drone and implying extended harmonies relative to that drone. Uh, when they first enter, it sort of seems to complete the picture of a D minor triad. Then they seem to suggest uh, this E dominant chord. And then we sort of keep modulating and then we get our first taste of what feels like maybe an A flat Lydian chord that that Lydian fourth implied by the harp drone. Really interesting texture. This is something that had a pretty big impact on me. There's a, a song that I wrote for a musical that Will and I were a part of, very much inspired by this harp drone and a sort of disorienting harmony around it. But it's that upper woodwind texture that was what we were sort of reminded of when looking at the theme from the arc. Yeah, I think it's so incredibly effective because in a sense, it is so minimal. We mentioned last week that Herman almost uh, anticipated minimalism with much of his music and just how direct it is. I think especially his film music because there was that sense in older film composers of directness and that the music had to be immediate. And what I think is so effective about this is what it does emotionally. Uh, you never have a true moment of resolution in this cue. Every single chord moment has some sort of dissonance that may be resolved, but then introduces another dissonance. And what's really effective about its use in the film is so much of this music needs to have momentum because it's carrying us through primarily visual sequences. Right. Particularly this cue in my mind uh, carries through a stretch of the film where you know there is no dialogue whatsoever and very incredible iconic visuals from Hitchcock's directing but really you could say the actors faces this music and the scenery is really all that's carrying us through the film and so I think it was a very wise choice of Herman to create this tiny little motor in the sense of a dance in that rhythm plays such a large part in this score and I think it's what helps a lot of these different scenes feel strung together as a sequence. I think that's a true. Big theme in the film is repetition and repeating hmm. uh, types of actions again and again and again and again and again. And sort of retracing your steps. Yeah, exactly. And I think that little motor almost feels that way. It starts to get in the back of your head, the wheels turning. 
in uh, that sense of mystery and discovery. Almost a, a, a form of hypnotism. Yeah, hypnotic, hypnosis. That's, that's definitely um, an emotional character that you could apply to this whole score. We've talked now about Herman's influence in film score um, in almost all directions, and that we can still hear his influence in almost every major film composer working in Hollywood today. This is a cue that I think is sort of timeless in that same way. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And it's even set in Hans Zimmer's favorite key of uh, D minor. <laughs> the saddest of all keys. <laughs> the very saddest of all keys. What I what I love about this score is how much the music is repeated. We're going to hear these cues again and again and again, but not always in an identical presentation. That does happen with some of the themes, right. but what I love about Carlotta's theme is it almost becomes the anthem of Scotty solving the puzzle, figuring out what's happening. And as he's starting to put the pieces of this mystery together, the orchestration and the texture of this theme really expands. And since it's built on that motor, it really leaves a lot of room for innovation. One of my favorite instances of it are when that little ostinato becomes scored with the strings in octaves. And instead of just having dun, Ooh, dun, 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 we actually hear dun, 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 Yeah, that dun, leap. Dun, dun. Oh, that's and, uh, we imply even more dissonance. I believe that happens in that famous uh visual hypnotic uh, nightmare sequence, but really effective. In the early portion of the movie, there's one other theme that gets repeated, and it's a theme that accompanies Scotty's pursuit of Madeline or Carlotta. It's often, as he's driving in the car, pursuing her from a safe distance. In character, it's somewhat similar to these other themes that we've looked at. Uh, let's take a listen to the theme that we'll call Scotty's Pursuit. You know what I love about the beginning of this cue is we're really just hearing a dominant chord, a major chord with a dominant seventh on top. But the way that it's orchestrated, it puts so much emphasis on this tritone dissonance, um, which in this case would be the third of the chord and the seventh. And even though it's a very familiar chord to us in tonal harmony, by putting that emphasis on the tritone, which has always been uh, this kind of questionable, sometimes in the history of classical music, it's been referred to as the devil's interval, Diablo in Musica. Right. It definitely gives us a sense of unease, to say the least. And and uh, that's what I think is so great from that very first chord, even though we're in familiar tonal ground, it sets the seeds for some of the dissonance and uncertainty that we're going to hear from the rest of the cue. That's so true. In classical music, we really only run into that chord construction as a dominant chord or the, the fifth degree. Opening the cue this way as though it's a, a stable tonic chord with that dissonance really does seem to suggest some sort of 
unease or some sort of suspicion. Yeah, absolutely. There's some other staples of Herman's writing and orchestration that we hear in this piece, which is the idea of a repeated musical phrase being given to different groups of the orchestra. So we have that lovely little passage with contrary motion that we first hear in the strings, and then we hear it just in the winds, um, just the clarinets. Um, and then back in a different group in the strings, and uh, particularly his fascination of clarinets as a juxtaposition against strings is something that seems to happen, um, or at least it's something that we've noticed in plenty of different Herman scores. Again, very direct writing. We're getting quite a lot of mileage out of those core ideas, that dominant chord in the strings set to that rhythm, and then that melodic figure that Will just pointed out. And those two elements really carry us through the entirety of the cues in the film that incorporate this theme. And that melodic figure itself, to describe it is almost to use the same kind of language for Madeline's theme, which right. it starts with this upward climb and then emphasizes this descending motion. You could almost look at it as that dominant chord with that incessant rhythm in the strings is that sort of Scotty's pursuit behind Madeline and that melodic fragment almost sort of evokes Madeline. Right. And the the syncopated nature of that ostinato dun 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 uh, possibly communicates a bit of that Spanish flavor that we were getting before. At the very least, it's a similar ostinato. Oh, I think you're right. What's yeah. so great, and what I love about films that have themes like this, it seems like they're just made to be laid on top of one <laughs> another and to be integrated. We talked about how Madeline's theme almost implies or foreshadows the ultimate love theme um, in its harmony. It actually, uh, in certain instances puts us in a chord with an inversion that's identical to the beginning of the love theme. Not in a way that you would notice the first time watching the movie or even the tenth time necessarily, but it implants some of those ideas in your head. Um, as we'll notice next week, the way he integrates different thematic ideas and some of the climactic areas of the film juxtaposes things and sets things on top of one another is really quite effective. And it's one of the great things about Herman's sense of primary theme. The melody of this cue is really just even rhythms. It's so basic, yet that has all to do with its effectiveness. So true. Again, this week, we can't help but talk about Herman's directness. He isn't typically very interested in adding, obscuring, complicating elements, either in the melody writing, in the harmonization, or the orchestration. And I think it's part of what makes Herman so indelible and so fascinating these many years later. I think that's very true. Well, I couldn't be more excited to move on to... I would say my favorite theme in this Vertigo score, and I think it's really one of the all-time greatest romantic themes of the golden age of cinema. Without question, I think, yeah. This is the love theme to Vertigo.
The version of this theme that you're hearing uh, is from a cue that is dubbed Scene d'Amour. Interesting amongst the cues in this film because Herman's naming conventions tend to be as basic and simple and direct as his themes. <laughs> the streets, the portrait, rooftop. It's all very um, the beach, direct. The forest, right. But this he calls Scene d'Amour. It's almost an indication that he was aware of the importance of this music and maybe an indication of his pride in the material that he created here. It's really one of the great sequences of film. Again, we will touch on that aspect later. I think that had to have been true. I, I do believe that this cue was also prepared for a concert performance, even at the time. It is a selection that has been performed many times in many concert halls around the world. That's very true as well. Uh, we're going to focus today primarily on the melody and harmony of this piece. Right as we're speaking now, we're getting the full flower of this theme. Uh, and really, when we're discussing uh, the love theme and the melody itself, this is the presentation that we have to discuss because it's really the only point in the film where you get the full iteration, A section and B section. Boy, is it ever delightful. I mentioned that uh, the Madeline's theme, or the theme that we're dubbing Madeline's theme, gives us in a statement that first chord, which happens to be an A-flat major chord with the melody starting on a D, which again, we could describe in a multitude of ways as maybe a raised fourth scale degree that works as kind of a sure. suspension. Um, but that opening chord is so striking. To me, it's always going to sound like vertigo. Anytime you have an A-flat chord with the D on top, it's so iconic and distinctive uh, to this film. Well, well and it's, you're not prepared for that A-flat triad to harmonize this melody. The melody appears to be very diatonic. So when that first harmony comes in and it's not a harmony you expect, it recontextualizes and colors what you're hearing it's just so striking and it's those kind of really striking moments of high potency those seem to be those moments of impact that herman is so dedicated to unearthing and the way that this theme presents itself is in keeping with that concept we talked about of the strong dissonant note resolving downward. It's a big component of the construction of this piece overall, but and by emphasizing that note, there's so much emphasis on the dissonance. And we hear it in the performance too. They basically right. is extremely as possible, give the most emphasis in weight to the higher dissonant note. And oftentimes they only barely touch. It's shorter in length. It's much softer in articulation for the second note. It's sort of that Russian approach to appoggiaturas that you hear in a lot of the romantic period. Oh, for sure. That sort of breathing, sighing yeah. resolution. Yeah. And all of these ideas, these principles are very classical in origin. I think it's important for us to remember that Bernard Herrmann was a conductor as well as a composer and was a big celebrator of lots of American music and uh, just the classical tradition. This score, just talking about the melody, again, so direct, so pure, 
Uh, the melody couldn't be more basic, yet the harmonic implications couldn't be more luscious and sumptuous. It's basically an oscillation between this A-flat major chord with a few dissonant, interesting color tones to this A minor chord. What's interesting about them is often um, Herman chooses, we mentioned this last time, of an oscillation between two chords. And whether they have some sort of third relation where maybe they're a third apart, or maybe they have no real relation and it's just focusing on uh, these two moments of impact, really the thing that these two chord tones have in common is their third scale degree of C natural. In A flat major, it's the major third, but in A minor, it's the minor third. And that's, I think, why Herman feels free to kind of oscillate between those two tones. The chords, to me, indicate almost a sense of danger. And for a love theme, I think that's really an interesting choice, but it's so fitted to this film and the character of, insert Kim Novak character name here. Right. Yeah, where the love is initially forbidden and ultimately maybe even sort of tragically doomed or cursed. Right. They're, they're not really allowed to be together as the fates would have it. The other wonderful feature of this particular cue or of the love theme that Will and I are so excited to talk about is the B section of this theme. When we were giving an overview of Herman's career and the sort of vintage Herman sound, in some ways it may have come across selling Herman slightly short of his musical powers. As always, we're trying to be as fair as possible. This B section, though, is just such an unabashed, uh, incredibly tuneful, and incredibly specific and lush melody um, that's moving upwards, upwards, and upwards. Right. It's sort of the side of Herman that we haven't really talked much about in the vintage Herman period, which is uh, melody moving upwards and a really developing, changing melody. It's taking this motive and altering it slightly, similar to when we were talking about uh, melodies of sequence in the past. Mm -hmm. And really in the spirit of a great uh, show tune or almost a Gershwin verse or something. Sure. It's well, yeah, it takes almost the latter half of the principal melodic statement because you have and he takes that bar and uses it as a sequence to bring us into our B section. Right. Also, the way that this was conducted uh, free from click is just so amazing and really sets up that climax it's just so compelling and so striking the other thing what i love about that b section in addition to it's harmonized with plenty of uh herman color um, <laughs> lots of uh, chords that we associate with him but in the second half of its statement it really emphasized that leaping up the first presentation the goal note keeps going lower but the second time he transposes that same pitch up the octave so we have and it just keeps rising and it's that's the goosebump moment i think for everyone it really is one of those unforgettable film moments thinking of herman here as a storyteller uh, he really recognizes that this is the climax of the film this is the closest that these characters will get to expressing their love and those familiar with the story know that even at this moment they're not 
necessarily fully honest with each other. Uh, in many ways, it's a 20th century film tragedy, really. Right. Yeah, absolutely. The one thing about this, so much of it is so emotionally pure, but the way it concludes in this triumphant cadence feels a bit inauthentic. And he does it a few points in the score, um, as we might notice in the next few weeks. But that really has that idea, again, of the score being from Scotty's perspective, that to him, everything's good. Now, you know, <laughs> right. he's finally happy. He has what he wants. Uh, but that's not what Mr. Hitchcock has in mind. <laughs> and what I think is so delightful is that the score is really being faithful to Scotty's ignorance of the moment. There's there's not a tinge in this cue of that things might not be certain when we're listening to it. It's as satisfying and climactic as possible. You could almost expect this to be at the very end of the movie. And again, as we mentioned with John Williams maybe scoring the humor of that sequence in Cairo with the big sword guy, um, he's almost playing along with our own expectations and it makes the humor more effective. Right. The tragedy in Vertigo is so much more effective because Herman is faithful to our expectation of the emotions rather than the ultimate perspective of the plot as we become introduced to it. So true. Uh, we should probably also mention that due to the circumstances of this particular production, Herman did not actually conduct the score to Vertigo. Right, that's true. It was apparently something that he regretted, but boy, it really is wonderfully conducted and wonderfully performed. <laughs> yeah, see, th those are my thoughts exactly. Uh, the fact that Herman didn't conduct it and that it would be something he is regretful about, I've always found interesting because the conducting of this score is one of the things that I would praise about it the most, particularly <laughs> right. in this scene d'amour sequence, because it needs to hit these very specific musical beats and the freedom of the performance, it really adds so much to the humanity of all this. And I, I mean, I just, uh, I'm so excited for the commentary and I'm so excited <laughs> for too. next week going through this whole score, if only to reach this moment in context again. It gives oh, me goosebumps boy. every time and very, you could say life affirming. This is one of those ultimate pieces of music in my book. I completely agree. It's truly one of those inspirational moments of music. Oh, uh, we were mentioning the conductor. It was, boy, I don't think I'll pronounce his name correctly, but Muir Mathieson. We can provide maybe a link to some of his information. Uh, not entirely clear on the pronunciation. And it was actually, there was a musician strike at the time that prevented the score from being recorded in Los Angeles. Uh, it was recorded in Europe. Yeah, I think some of it was recorded in London and some of it in Vienna. An interesting element to the production here and you have to imagine it's part of what makes the sound of the score so unique we wanted to end things today with the final theme that we'll be discussing that ironically is one of the opening musical cues of the film this happens in the sequence on the rooftop it's this wonderfully directed sequence where we see scotty as a police officer and this is almost the birth of his acrophobia which is such a focal point of this movie and even though it seems to be scored very intimately to this opening sequence, it's utilized in almost a copy and paste fashion for any time when we notice Scotty having his acrophobia. It covers that incredible vertigo effect, that camera trick that we maybe alluded to. This is the music that underscores any of those sequences. Let's take a listen. 
incredibly exciting piece of music here. The flurry of string activity and the intensity of that low brass. It's certainly vintage Herman, but it's also film music through and through. Oh, completely. And the fact that it has this ostinato, this little motor to keep things running. Again, what I love about older film music is so many of these incredibly effective little melodic devices. It almost feels like this is the point that they're being discovered. Um, because <laughs> a gesture like that, I think, in modern film music might come across as cliché. And I don't think it's cliché here um, but really it has to do with it's almost like there's more coal there's more diamond there's more natural resources uh, right. to be discovered and to be plunged and I think that's why some of these Herman themes are just so pure and so direct it's almost like he's dealing with these primary sources this natural uh, raw material here boy I, I love that idea reminds me of uh, John Cleese talking about the early days of Monty Python and he described it as being this field of flowers that you could just pick and it just seemed like it was endless. I think that is so true here. And what a gift that we have Herman's penchant for direct writing in that period of mining that pure coal, like you described. Well, and the ostinato motor aspect of this piece, very much emphasized by Herman's written score, which I know utilizes frankly, a lot of repeat signs, just wholesale repeated bars. I think that plays into the idea that the construction of this piece is less about specific tapestries of counterpoint and um, intricate notes, and it's more about how these very basic building blocks stack up and are overlaid on top of one another, that that string ostinato that's very clusterous and has this really dark, um, intense quality to it, how that's juxtaposed with a similar ostinato chromatic idea in the winds and how things enter when we have that brass. You, you really could almost be describing a lot of 20th century minimalism yeah, or completely. even a Steve Reich piece or yeah. John Adams piece or something. The um, last thing we have to mention about this cue, because like we said, it's less of a, a melodic identifier. It's not a light motif in that sense, rather that the wholesale cue is a theme. And what's interesting about that is when we talked about Madeline's theme, or to use Raiders as an example, say Marion's theme, it really was about the notes and rhythms. It was less about the orchestration because it has so many Many different presentations but with a theme like this the orchestration is so relevant to discuss because it is repeated in this wholesale fashion when we see scotty on the rooftop in his first moment of vertigo we have that really kind of biting cringy chord that utilizes brass and woodwinds and what's so interesting about it is before then we have this little timpani roll that has this uncertainty and then everything but the instruments hitting those chords which had been fairly absent when it comes to the trumpets and some of the um, striking woodwind intervals they're soloed all on their own no strings no timpani nothing that we'd been hearing before it's such a striking moment the kind of thing that, again, I think if it were done now, it might come across as campy or something. Right. What I love about score from this era, there's no fear of using these really direct musical devices. And I think it's so well married to the film because visually you could say that vertigo effect with the lens is also that same type of visual directness. 
it's interesting. The feeling of campiness, it's not like an emotional response of, oh, this strikes me as sad or funny or joyful. It's really dependent on existing usage. So artists like Herman, it's because of their explorations and you could argue their boldness in some cases. Well, and how iconic their use of something is that it almost makes it so married to that film. When you hear it in other contexts, it may be distracting just because it's so striking. Something I wanted to mention about that moment is we have this wonderful thing that happens in the harp. Just these wild glisses that aren't so much concerned with pitch, but rather just the movement of those lines. I think we have two harps at once that are sort of glissing oppositionally or something. Right. Yeah, that's almost a truncated version of the Vertigo theme where we have that minor major seventh chord moving in contrary motion. But what's so great about that, it communicates this disorientation. When we experience Scotty's vertigo visually in the film, that's such an interesting effect that happens with the camera lenses. But musically having those harps, it's almost like his sense of balance is gone. When people describe having vertigo, the actual condition, this is a case of almost literally trying to depict some of those things in music. I think it's really striking because so much of Herman's music is not literal. It's more hitting the emotional or cerebral core of a particular idea. But as we mentioned, this score is from Scotty's perspective. So his emotions at this time are being communicated. They're just uh, a bit more specific in literal than say like the love theme. Right. We hope you've enjoyed our exploration of the central themes of Alfred Hitchcock and Bernard Herrmann's Vertigo. We've just been so excited to dive into the score. And like Will said, we really can't wait to sit down with the film in our full-length commentary at the end of this month. Absolutely. Next week, once again, we're going to have another uh, spotting session where we're going to go through every music cue in the film and discuss their context and what's happening in the story around it. I'm, I'm sure that many of you are familiar with Vertigo and hopefully the score, uh, but especially in 2017, it's probably not as widely known a film as Raiders of the Lost Ark. Hopefully next week will be a good opportunity to acquaint all of you with the story of this movie to have a full appreciation of the score. Herman really did something quite incredible here with his marriage to the film. Oftentimes when we think of great composer relationships, whether it's uh, Spielberg and Williams or Zemeckis and Alan Silvestri. Or Tim Burton and Danny Elfman. In this case, Alfred Hitchcock and Bernard Herman, they almost seem to complete each other's sentences where one hands off visually and one comes in with the music. So masterful. Uh, yeah, like we said, we just can't wait to get into it. As always, please feel free to forward any questions, comments, thoughts to the underscore show at gmail.com. You can also like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube and iTunes. 
Uh, if you're enjoying the show, please feel free to leave a review on iTunes. That helps new listeners find the show. Very true. That is incredibly important. Another thing I wanted to mention, if uh, you're a listener of this show and you have any interest at all in video game music, we encourage you to check out our sibling podcast, Super Mercado Brothers Video Game Music Podcast. That's hosted by myself and our other brother, Carl. As we mentioned before, Underscore is part of the Mercado Brothers network, and it really is a network of brothers. So we try to create content that will be enjoyable for either fans of video game music or film music. As we've noticed from doing these shows, so often there is an overlap and we'll be listening to a film cue and I'm reminded of a piece of game music and oftentimes on that show we reference film composers and concepts from film music. So we just wanted to mention that. You can follow the Super Marcado Brothers at Marcado Bros on Twitter and you can follow us at underscore underscore show. The second underscore is silent. Well, that's all for today, everybody. Until next time. And remember, we listen because we love. Take care. Underscore is part of the Mercado Brothers Podcast Network.